This week on the How To Be 60 podcast, the man who used to reveal the number one single of the week, former Radio 1 DJ Mark Goodyear. As he says, he's always lived his life at 100 miles an hour, until one day, he couldn't. Every morning I go and make a cup of tea for Jacqueline at half six, and I'd made the tea and I carried them up and I put her tea down and I put my tea down on my side of the bed, and then I just collapsed. And I'm wondering how to be 60, it's scaring the shit out of me. Hello everyone, it's time for another run around the houses with me, Kay Adams, and she, Karen McKenzie, on the How To Be 60 podcast. And can we start with a bit of a... An update on suggestions for a new career for you, Karen. <laughs> you fight away, fight away. Well, you remember, yes. this is when we were speaking to Sally Dinever. Yeah. And it came up because Caroline Paradigm got in touch with us and she said yes. that she was starting a, a new career at the age of 62. Acting. She was a bit yeah. pissed off at me because I had suggested um, that this was a time of life to sort of let up and smell the roses and mm-hmm. enjoy the view, etc. And she said, no, 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 I'm embarking on a new career at 62. So mm-hmm. we asked people to get in touch with suggestions of a new career for you <laughs> at the age of 63 and 11 twelfths. <laughs> yes. So, and... so do you want to know what they came up with? <laughs> Tell me. Nothing. Well, that's because... Our listeners are so astute because they know I want to do diddly squat. That's probably not the right term, but they know I'm happy doing hee-haw. So they think we're not going to suggest anything for Karen. We know she's happy where she is. Well, that's she's doing. that's a positive spin, but I I'm think kind so. of thinking they just they just kind of think you're the telephone directory of the human world. You know, the video recorder, Aww. the floppy disk, the, the holiday postcard. As my father would say, neither use nor ornament. Did your dad ever say that? No, neither new. Yeah, neither use nor ornament. That's a good phrase. Isn't <laughs> That's it? quite good, isn't the it? The phrase I like is, I'd rather be a tart on a tree than a steel bun on a shelf. Well, hang on, let me work that out. My brain's <laughs> good. I'd rather be a tart on a tree than a steel Bill bun on, on a, a shelf. shelf. So I'd rather be seen than be invisible. Jesus, that's Hobson's choice, isn't it? <laughs> Bloody hell. Maybe oh my God. Yeah. yeah, so that's some other, yes. Well, I think everyone will adopt that. We'll hear that now <laughs> as we go about the streets. <laughs> I'd rather be a tart in a tree. It'll be on Strictly Come Dancing. Tess Daly will be coming out with it. You just wait. <laughs> just saying, Claudia, I'd rather be a tart on a tree than a stale bun on a shelf. Stale bun. Stale bun on a shelf, yeah. Um, talking about things of the past, mixed cassette tapes. Oh, remember God. Did you get them made for you from ex-boyfriends? Uh, yes, you did. And yes. the, the really bad writing yes. on the, on the, oh, yeah. well, the ones I went out with. <laughs> bad writing, I have to say. Oh, they were just the it. best, weren't they? Oh, my goodness. I made one up, funnily enough, um, when I, my friend Murdoch and I took the kids. We went to France to see the eclipse. I think it might have been in 2000, year 2000. Um, Bonnie Tyler, total eclipse. <laughs> <laughs> And we drove to France. Uh, and in a slips? Yes. Yeah. Hey, hell, you had a lot of time in your hands. Uh, yeah, I think we went for the week. I mean, it was great. I made up. I made up this mixtape. You know, I had Blur, Oasis, Pulp, get that you, kind of thing. Get you. And I remember one track by James. Now, the kids would have been eight and ten. And James had this You were track never that cool. Called Lead. 
Uh-huh. And I remember Alex at the age of eight blasting out in the back. She only comes when she's on top. And I thought, <laughs> God, she's eight. And Karen and I looked at each other and thought, when is she going to realise what she's actually what these lyrics mean? And actually, what, what does it know? mean? Yeah, well, we'll work on that. <laughs> and uh, the kids just loved it. You know how you know every track that follows yeah, the next yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. And Lisa it still has on her Spotify playlist, running list, uh, the same tracks on that. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, it's really nice, but uh, mixtapes were brilliant, weren't oh, they? Oh, God, that is nice. Yeah. yeah. I, I was more of a Gilbert O'Sullivan person, I have to say. Gilbert? That was one cool. I don't know what was wrong with me. I think I even had the new Seekers. Well, I've told you the first single I bought was Ernie the Fastest Milkman in the West, and it was all downhill from there. Oh, so, um, Sugar, sugar. Yeah. Sugars, yeah, mm-hmm. let's not, let's no. not, because we have a former Radio 1 DJ, Mark, goodie bags, goodier. And then Mark also did Top of the Pops. Top of the Top Pops. Pops. God, we all love that. I actually night. see that being recorded a couple of times. How did you manage that? Oh my God, it was the hottest ticket in town. It really was. this boyfriend that worked for the BBC. And I remember this one night that I went, Susie Sue and the Banshees were there. And I was convinced that Susie Sue fancied me. What the hell? I, you know, I, just kind of, I just kind of felt that she was looking at me all the time. I think maybe it was all that mascara. Maybe she just had something in her eyes or something. Um, or maybe but, a squint. But I was convinced. I was convinced that Susie. Susie Sue fancied me. Um, and as you know, what I'm like, I always go off on these sort of journeys. And I thought, I wonder, I wonder what Susie Sue's up to now. Because you know, I went and found out that Kiki D was still alive. Still alive, and yes. that was good news. And Susie, um, Susie Sue. Is 67 and oh. she is still touring oh European music festivals. She's still absolutely formidable. Uh, she's kind of lost the makeup a little bit, but she is absolutely <laughs> looking good. That's incredible, isn't there it? You go. Would so, you go and see her now? I think maybe I'm going to try and get her on the podcast and see if maybe she did really fancy me. You never know. Anyway. Hey, who? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Anyway, anyway. Uh, we never got anything for you to do 64 next week or 64 next I'm week. I'm absolutely you? happy doing nothing, Kate. Do you think they, do they just, I should don't mean, hang do on a minute. I'm not doing nothing. I'm doing bloody loads. <laughs> I've just fallen into that trap. I've had a really busy week. I've been baking actually all week. And that's not busy. And I've started that's making not busy. I started making kombucha again. I I, I well, made you kombucha. got a bad stomach. Actually, it's for Stephen's stomach. <laughs> I always say that. I always blame it on Stephen. Um, Too loose? Actually, <laughs> I thought that was somewhere in France. <laughs> it was very good. Um, so you put me on shot now. <laughs> I am. I'm merci. You were um, thinking about Stephen's stools and it kind of distracted you. That's not a pleasant thought for anyone. <laughs> not really. Oh, no. God. Edit that bit out. <laughs> anyway, I used to make kombucha about five years ago until... It kind of, yeah, once it, I opened it and it went, pssst, it went right on the ceiling and over the wall and I gave up on that. And now I got back into it. I managed to get a little scoby. Do you know what a scoby is? No, I do No, it's the mother uh, Oh, that, that looks like a... You sent me a picture of that. It looks a wee bit like a placenta. Oh. And you put it I'd into... I'd rather have Stephen Stools if I had a choice. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what? It's really good for your gut. Oh, kombucha. I might bring you some once. It's, no, so no, no. Too gassy. A couple of weeks. No. It'll be good for you. Be good no, for you. No, no, because I'm off the sugar. Oh, my God. I I cannot believe that you're yep. sticking to that. I have to say, Kay, 
it doesn't come out often, but I'm actually impressed with you. Well, don't be don't be too eating. Don't be too impressed. Because, you know, this was Fiona Lambert that inspired me and she was so, so strict. I mean, she had no dairy, um, no alcohol. No alcohol. I mean, I'm not as strict as her. No. Um, Oh, the sugar and alcohol. Yeah, no. So I I don't drink much anyway. I have had two or three glasses of wine. In the morning. Yeah. No, not before 11. Um, (laughs) But I have had no chocolate. I have no sweeties. I have had no cakes. And I have had no, what is the other bad thing? Have you had any fruit? Nope. No, because so, I eat a lot of vegetables, so I don't need fruit. It's breakfast. What? What do you have for your breakfast? Uh, oats. Like dried oats? No, I have oats with uh, yogurt. Right, and that's yeah. that's quite clean, is it? Yeah, that's quite and clean. And then lunch? Uh, soup, I just had soup and a bit of bread. Right, and bread and homemade. Because otherwise you don't know what crap is. I'm only asking. I'm only asking. No, I'm really impressed, Kia, I am. So, and then what about nighttime? Your your meal? Well, but I don't have sugar in my nighttime meal. You might have a pudding. No, I don't. I haven't had chocolate. Do you feel different? Or whatever the other one is. No, No. I've still got a belly the size of a planet. So why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Just to challenge yourself? But you know what? I did it just because she suggested it and that's my nature. I think, Mm. well, she can do that. I can do that. Yeah. And I can't really. I'm only doing it like 50% of what she's doing. But it's so easy. I don't think it's easy. No, honestly, try it. You will be really, really surprised. It's try, try it. Honestly, you will you'll try it. I've actually, I've just thought of a good job for you, actually, what? before we go on to email of the week. Do they still have lollipop ladies? I, what? <laughs> do you get paid for being a lollipop lady? Is it voluntary? You'll get pocket money. But you could do it for the goodwill, for no, helping the children. What? Listen, you've got one of your Nordic sticks, your walking sticks. You could just, <laughs> what could you put on the top of that? A tea tray, a circular <laughs> tea tray. I'll help you. A lollipop lady. That's your new career. Do you know what? It's split shifts. I would what? finish it at night. No, you have to go back at blinking. No, no. Lunchtime I, or three o'clock. No, Can't be bothered with I'm that. I'm going to inquire. No, if it was, see if I was finished. the dog with you? If I was finished at nine in the morning, that would be fine. But you've got to traipse back along at lunchtime and then again at three o'clock. Oh, no, I'm not interested in splits. I'm Googling job applications Might as well be with Glasgow City No, a lollipop <laughs> lady. I can just see. They're too young for that, I think. Are you hell? The kids would be Fucking terrified the way across that road before you knew it. They really would. Are you ready for email of the week? Yeah, you know I love this. Bit. Jolly good. Mm-hmm. Well, regular listeners will remember tablet gate, mug gate, mm-hmm. and tea towel Putting gate. Yes, yeah. because I wanted us to have some kind of special gift for people who took the trouble to put in emails. I still think a tea towel, Karen. Well, you weren't prepared to the tablet. Anyway, you said a tea no, towel. Right, I wasn't. Uh-huh. Lorna mm. has come up with a fantastic alternative. Mm. She's obviously um, picked up on our conversation with Sally Denever and Bonnie Langford about, you know, you know, you know what I'm going to say? Uh, well, don't spoil the punchline. No, I don't So know. here's from Lorna. Hi, Kay and Karen. Forget the tea towel mm. or the mug as a prize for email of the week. Mm-hmm. How about sending out... An opportunity knocks sex toy. (laughs) Just think how interesting the thank you emails might be. It's a good point, isn't it? Well, you'll have to develop one. That means you'll have to. That means you'll have to kind of go through a few, try them out. I know. Yeah, a bit of road testing. Yes, of of sex toys, (laughs) and then come up with our own how to be sixty opportunity opportunity knocks knocks sex toy. Would we be able to copyright that? Not copyright it. Is it okay to sort of use that? I don't think anyone will be copying it. To be honest, I think we'll be fine to say. No, but could we use that name? 
Who's going to stop us? Who's not around? I think we're on to a winner. Lorna, thank you very much. We will yeah. split the the profits three ways, <laughs> which sounds quite sexual in itself in some kind of way, doesn't it? But it's a hell of a lot better tea towel. Well, it's more exciting, I have to say. Thanks, Lorna. <laughs> I thanks, Lorna. <laughs> we'll speak to Mark after this. Hi, Mark. Hello. I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> Remarkably. <laughs> no, no, it's good. You should definitely get Kiki D on if you haven't had her on. She's unbelievable. Really? She's amazing. Yeah. Is she? She's in her 70s, I'm sure. But she maybe even. Um, um, yeah, she's in her 70s. She was the, uh, I think she was the first white art artist assigned to Motown. Certainly first white female, I think. Oh. She's, uh, she ha she, she's had an amazing life. Oh, God, you know what? Well, I think we will do that because it just came out of conversation because I had been on the radio and we played Don't Go Breaking My Heart yeah. with Ella Kiki one. D. Love that one. And I said, God, what happened to Kiki D? Um, and so, like I say, did that Google. She apparently lives in Hertfordshire. Elton John sends her an orchid every birthday. <laughs> and that's, that's almost certainly true. Yeah. yeah, and and she's I think seventy three or something like that. But God. I didn't know any anything else about her life. So um, she's it's amazing on the list. life, and she's still amazing and great singer. We had oh. her on. I worked with her about oh ten. You worked 50, with Kiki D. Yes. Come on, you're building up your part there. Just a radio documentary. You met her at reception. <laughs> <laughs> I produced the program. <laughs> And uh, yes, Kiki D was there. I tried to think where it was. It might have been in Perth. And yeah. I, yeah, 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 yeah. She got the train up, and I was, yeah, yes. Oh, she was good actually. Yeah, it was lovely. Oh, well, we'll put her on yeah, the she list. did sing. What about Susie Sue? Have you met Susie Sue? I have interviewed her, but I, not. I don't have a proper recollection of that interview. A lot of it is is um, quite blurry for me from over the years. Uh, I'm right. going to blame my stroke, but I, uh, I, <laughs> but it, I, I love the records, and I and. I I think she was quite you know you, you have an impression that she'll be quite scary and I actually thought that about Robert Smith of the Cure as well it must be a makeup thing but in fact they're both great. Oh well, that's not so bad. Actually, she did look so scary. But then as I was googling her just to check that she was still on the planet, um, I saw that her partner was called Budgie, and I thought she that's can't correct. be that scary, can she? He was in the band. He was in the band. Budgie was in the band. Well, that kind of sort of like t took the scariness away from Susie Sue for me because I thought of Susie and Budgie sitting watching Coronation Street <laughs> and I thought, ain't going to be that bad, is it? <laughs> Not that scary. Absolutely. So Top of the Pops at that time, what, when did you do it, Mark? So uh, late 80s and about mid 90s. Oh, and like everybody, I grew up watching Top of the Pops, but that was never my ambition to do that show. That's a show you had to do as Peter Powell, who was my first manager at Radio 1, because he'd left or was about to leave to start his, what was for a very long time, the most successful TV presenter talent business in the UK. Um, he said to me, it's a face check. You've got to do it. It's a face check. And, you know, it's it's when you look back at that and remember that there was no computer games, there was only a handful of TV channels, uh, Footballers were superstars who opened supermarkets, and apparently so did radio and DJs, though I think that was a little bit before my time. But I, I grew up watching it like everybody, and then I had to do it. And I'd always just wanted to be the radio guy, so I found it quite a weird thing. And I, I did it because it was a, 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 like an obligation as opposed to like a chore in a way, almost, than, than uh, 
being something I, I could enjoy. And I, I've, I spent my, I spent all my time doing it. And about two decades after that, thinking that it was really awful every time. And uh, about to 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, one of my kids found some old uh, VHS tapes and stuck one in. And it was a recording of Top of the Pops. It was my son. And he said to me, I didn't know you did that. That's so cool. And, you know, I had to reframe how awful I thought it was, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm not a visual person. I'm, I'm glad we do. Uh, glad to work in audio. Uh, but it was a great, it actually turns out it was a great thing to do. And they're playing them every Friday night on BBC Four now. So I don't watch it, but I hear people who say, I saw you on the telly on Friday night. It's just the weirdest thing. That's so weird. That there's any DJ out there who's, it wouldn't be whose ambition was to be on top of the pops. My ambition was to be on Radio One. I used to, uh, and and I know why that was. And I know that I used to walk to school in Edinburgh with my mate who lived two streets down. And I used to have the transistor by, radio by my ear. <laughs> and we used to listen to DLT on breakfast. And uh, I said to uh, this friend of mine, uh, who's sadly no longer with us, but I said to him, I'm going to work there one day. And he absolutely, you know, ripped me a new one saying, don't be ridiculous. There's no way a lad from Edinburgh will ever work on Radio 1. God knows what I'd have done if it hadn't have worked out. So that that is by way of explanation my my ambition. What I always wanted to do was work at Radio One, and I never thought for a minute that I wanted to present Top of the Pops. And I think that you know the people who are really good at TV, that is their ambition, and because they're good at that, they're sometimes pretty good at radio. It rarely works the other way around. If you only want to do radio, and you suddenly find yourself doing TV, you're not always that great at it. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems well. In one way, it seems a shame that you that you couldn't enjoy that moment when you were there. You know? I think if if I'd have been this, the person, who, the kind of person which I never have been and maybe never will be, probably the sort of person who could uh, listen to anybody else and or and or have therapy, I might have realised that it was okay. I, just, I remember driving to TV Centre and later to Elstree thinking, "What am I doing? I hate doing this. I don't want to do it." And then we go all the way through her rehearsals. And I, you know, do it, but really not want to be there. And then, of course, I'd turn it on for the show as much as I possibly could. And it wasn't that bad. It just, it just was, I could, I, when I, when I ever saw it back, I always thought it looked absolutely terrible. And there were not enough people telling me that it actually was all right. So weird. When you said that you had to do it, was it more or less mandatory or was it had to do it for uh, your career? I think that, I think that the, I, here's the thing, right? I'm I've always been the person who says yes, so I've always been very I, I suffer from presenteeism all my life. So if somebody said, "Would you like to do this show, or would you help us out with that?" I've always just said yes. I've never I, I, I find it really difficult, even now, when I know I should say no. I go for a meeting where I'm I've determined I'm saying I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing it, and I find myself I'm yes, I'll do that for you. You know, it's just. It's just who I am. I don't know if you can really change. Do you know what it was you hated about the the television experience then? I just wasn't confident. I think I I just didn't feel I was um, I was able to master it because I didn't. It wasn't an ambition. So the reason I wanted to do radio was because I as as a little kid, uh, I was brought up in this Edinburgh classical music family. Never heard pop music at all, really. I think I remember visiting my grandparents and the neighbours played Penny Lane and I thought that was interesting. But when I was uh, early 70s, I was in the school playground and people were talking about Top of the Pops the night before and I was on the out, like the little outsider on the outside of this circle of people talking. And 
I think they probably knew that I'd not seen Top of the Pops because guess what? We didn't have a TV either. And you, you didn't have a telly. In the early 70s. And so uh, they somebody spotted that I was you know, following but not really able to participate. And they said to me, did you see it last night? And, of course, I lied. I faked it. I said, yeah, it was great. And I thought, I can't get caught out like that. So I went home and we had a little Sony Cube transistor radio in the kitchen. And I turned it from Radio 3 to 247 medium wave, which was Radio 1. So my, from that point onwards, my parents had, you know, used to get really grumpy with me, perpetually resetting their radio. And honestly, this sounds ridiculous. But and my Jacqueline, my wife of 36 years, uh, says it's ridiculous when I say it. But I really didn't want to do it to be famous. I wanted to do it because I just loved that. It was a romantic thing of... Uh, eventually getting a transistor radio and hearing Radio Luxembourg under the pillow, that thing that all kids of that of my era did. I just thought that was the thing I had to do. I can't really explain it any more than that. And I've been, I still don't want to do it to be famous. I, I want to do it because it's if you're playing great records and you're part of people's lives and you can contribute something, that's a good thing. So when you got to Radio 1, was it all that you had dreamed of then as a little boy? I think I was scared for the first few years because uh, <laughs> I remember uh, I remember meeting Mark Page, who was a Radio One DJ before me, uh, probably bef- as I started or something. And he he was he said something to me like, you know, I've been here for a while, but they're probably going to fire me soon. And uh, and that was obviously the way he was thinking. And uh, sometimes, you know, people do. St- there are lots of people who had one show on a Saturday night, that was the trial, and you'd maybe get 26 weeks and then you'd disappear. There's quite a lot of people who that happened to. And I, you know, you you live, if you if it's all you want to do and you've got there, the last thing you want is to be out the door, you know, a, a minute later sort of thing. So I probably probably didn't get to being something until I, they, I got on to daytime. It must have been a difficult environment to be in then as somebody, as, as you're explaining it, Mark, who who wasn't the most confident, who who did doubt themselves. And and actually, you know, Radio 1 at that time, and I'm only saying this as somebody who listened to it, it was so cool. The people, the DJs, you know, yeah. DLT, Simon, Simon Bates, Bates yes. um, you know, all of these. I mean, big, big stars and all well, of them larger big, than yeah. life. Big beasts. For you to fit into that if you weren't well, actually feeling it. Well, there was definitely not a shortage of egos put it that way and i didn't really have an ego i didn't think and i so that the, the your question is is the right question which is how how difficult is it to be in the same environment as mike smith mike reed's lovely uh you know mike smith uh dlt simon bates who are just big beasts you know and i kind of got on with some of them and i really got on with steve wright who's always been you know, really lovely. And um, so there's like in all walks of life, there's a mix of people and there's a bunch of people in, you know, in every, in every company you might work for who think they're the elite lot. And if you're not part of that elite, you're not in the gang until you maybe get in the gang. Mm. I think I maybe in the end got in the gang. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and so what was the, I mean, you know, we, we've moved on a lot, haven't we? I mean, I still work in radio. You work, you know, you're a greatest hit. The working environment is very different now. We've found out a lot over the years about the working environment within Radio One and other parts of the BBC, which, you know. And everywhere, not, actually. I and everywhere. And which the thing is not, about it is, Kay, you know, 
whenever there's a story about a broadcaster who's misbehaved or, you know, somebody in showbiz, that is a really easy. And, and look, I'm not saying they didn't do it. And very often people are guilty of the allegations. Um, but the, uh, the fact is it, it's in all walks of life. And so if we, if we allow people to say, well, look, there you go, there's another DJ or there's another TV personality and it's always the beep, which it isn't, uh, you're denying people who've suffered that in, you know, a clothing factory or, uh, you know, in any, any business, the, the recognition that it's everywhere. People, there are badly behaved people everywhere. No, I, I, you know what? That is a, such a valid point because it, it was, um, we've seen huge cultural change, haven't we? Yeah. And at a certain, if we're talking the 70s and 80s, it was a very different culture. And as you say, in, in whatever walk of life, um, then that kind of behavior would have been out there. I suppose for the BBC, once the Jimmy Savile story came out, I mean, it's kind of, you know. Did you ending, work with you can't, you can't I be- met Jimmy Savile and I, I thought he was creepy. And actually, you know, People have said to me that when they used to watch Top of the Pops as kids, their dad said he's creepy. You know, people people kind of knew, but people didn't know the excruciating detail of it. You know, uh, it, it was you know, it, it was very powerful. So this is the point about that, those behaviors is that they're very often a result of ego and power imbalance and people thinking they can put on other people and get away with it. Well, they shouldn't. And, you know, my youngest, who's 25, would never put up with that shit, you know. She would just immediately call them out. She wouldn't, t- you know, uh, bottle it up and come home and, you know, not talk to anybody about it. She'd just call them out. The other thing about that time, um, again, not just in Radio One, but I think maybe particularly in Radio One, was that idea of age. I was always very conscious, again, just as a listener, that, you know, because you had to be very cool to be on Radio 1. And actually, I'm thinking the age of people, they were probably quite older, but there was almost like a ticking clock yeah. the minute you started, you know, and that you would be eased to the next one and the next one. Were you ever told you're too old now? I don't think I was, but I think I knew that. Uh, I think I don't, I, just to preface this answer, I do accept that radio stations need to change. You can't just stay stuck in time. And they all stations have to, and Radio 2 had to, and Radio 1 had to. So if I started in 87, if I were, you know, if I'd have been around there in 2007, you know, that would have been five years longer than I did. That may have been too much because everything changes. But there are also t- talented people who a good controller will want to get on the air. Uh, so I, 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 I was all right with it. I actually did think I'd done. I think I'd done the right thing. There, there is always, there's always a nuance about whether you could have stayed on. But I, I did all right after it, you know. Did it mean that you had to have another string to your bow then? I mean, if you were aware well, that I'd you were already, time limited. So I, this is this is the uh, other thing for which I'm very lucky. In '94, um, you, national radio, and I think the regions too, started putting out productions to in uh, to tender, saying we'd like a program here. We'd like it to be a bit about that. Would you like to pitch to make it? And so Radio One did that, and I thought, well, I know how to do that. In- in my not so humble way, and I uh, so I set up a company called Wise Buddha, which was a production indie making audio um, for a very long time. In fact, we then spun it, spun that bit of it out of a larger company into a company called Listen, uh, which makes that's still a lot for the B, but huge amounts for other brands and other other places like Spotify and Audible and Sky. 
which I just sold. So, uh, but I, that was the, that was the other string. So, right. So you sold those businesses? So not all you, of them. Not all of them. Just one. Of them. Just, just the one. one. Yeah. And has that got a feeling of you're winding down or just moving? Well, this is to the point of how to be sixty. I tell you what it is. Uh, I'd had I had uh, two strokes in October. 2016 and January 2017 and after the first one this is because you know the, the other thing I don't think you get to uh, do some of the things I've done without being fairly all or nothing so that's the other component of my personality which is I'm, I'm all or nothing meaning mostly 100% on and that that I think is why I had the strokes but after the first stroke uh and Jacqueline and Grace were in the house and they got me in hospital and I got, got sorted and home within a couple of weeks. So I went, I went back home and I, you know, shuffled around the neighborhood with Jacqueline. It was amazing. And really, you know, it's like almost like being a baby because you really can't do anything and you're knackered all the time. And eventually I would walk down to the high street to, to a cafe and have a bun and a hot chocolate and walk back and, and then have to sleep as when I got back. But after about three months, I sort of felt okay. And I went to see the, spe- the neuro specialist and he's, he was a runner and I was a runner and I did half marathons and marathons. And I said to him, can I run again? And he said to me, you can, but honestly, really just go gentle. So the following, that was on a Monday and the following uh, Saturday, I went out with my mate for a really a gentle run, it was two miles at a no at no pace at all. And then on the Sunday, I had the second stroke, and that was and it's a very uh, humbling thing because you you realise that you actually do need to give in sometimes. You know, uh, this is you still didn't get it, did you? Moment. And the second one was me was me really needing then to stop and to have other people run the companies and to pre- be prepared to not push on like I ho- always have done. Uh, for my whole life. So you were 55 when yeah. you had the stroke and you said you were a runner. So you weren't thinking that you were in that category. I mean, I have, have to say it's one of my great fears. My mom had two strokes. Um, it's a thing I fear. It's my big fear. I can re- completely relate to that now because I definitely don't want a third one. But here's the thing. I do think people listening to this may know somebody who's who works too hard or who never relaxes or never gets enough exercise or has a combination of those those kinds of stresses and things and i think i brought it on myself by just working all the time and i shouldn't really be proud of leaving jacqueline to be to bring up the kids almost like a single mum but you know when i was at radio one i was running this business and i was doing dj gigs and voiceovers and i i think probably you get into a way of life like that and you think you, you you think you're invincible or you think you have to do it that way if you go back to the, the top of the pops thing and being at radio 1 and being thinking you might get fired after 2 years i think my presenteeism is a sort of buried um thing of that and i've i spent my whole life go, going at 100 miles an hour so i think i brought the strokes on myself did the doctor say that uh, I'd, I'd stopped smoking in the quite oh, a long time before, a couple of decades before. But the thing is, I did drink. I never thought I drank that much. But, you know, I think a lot of people sort of have a bottle of wine on the end of the day and self-medicate with alcohol that way. And I think that the the, the, the running question is that I didn't think I was invincible. 
but I thought I was fit and I was quite physically fit. And because I ran long distances, I did occasionally get heart scans and, you know, was very reassured by having a heart calcium score of zero, meaning you're really unlikely to have a heart attack and all your vascular stuff from the neck down is great. And then the bit that you didn't, that I didn't know was that the vascular stuff in the brain was really not that good and sleep and and giving yourself a break really i'm i'm still not that great at it but that is the way to to to, to not have strokes when it happened did you yeah. know it was happening i was just going to ask that yeah well the in the summer in the run up to it i started getting migraines and the, the neuro specialist gave me some tablets that stopped the migraines and that was the but that as i look at the sort of longer if you look at the longer landscape of this, that was obviously the start of me having vascular problems. But at the time, we dealt with it like it was a, a, a migraine issue. And I had started to feel much more tired. And I I would find myself, I always went to work at half seven or eight in the morning, but I'd find myself coming home at four o'clock and lying on the sofa. And that was a behavioral change. But I didn't uh, think I was about to have a stroke. Uh, but when I had it, I definitely knew I'd had it. I had all those things that you see in the ads, which is the, you know, the, the face and the, you can't raise your hand and all of those things. It's fast, isn't it? And my daughter who's seen those ads as a little kid, like 10 years earlier, remembered those exactly. And she knew and Jacqueline knew that it was time to get me in a, a blue, a blue light ambulance. So I did know, I did, I, the circumstances were every morning I go and make a cup of tea for Jacqueline at half six and I'd made the tea and I carried them up and I put her tea down and I put my tea down on my side of the bed and then I just collapsed and it was it was dead obvious to them that's what it was I was just looking up fast as well it's probably worth just what we're talking it's facial drooping f obviously a arm weakness s and you can't raise your arms yeah s is for speech difficulties And T is for for time. Time is of the essence. And thank goodness your mm-hmm. wife and your, your daughter recognised it and and got you to the hospital. But was there a moment of awareness in there? You said you knew you were having a stroke. I mean, I'm very dramatic, Mark. But was there a moment you thought, Jesus Christ, this is it? You know, I'm I'm buggered. I'm I'm a DJ. I, I've I've had a stroke. Well, I'll tell you that. Um, but what they try and do is they try and get you there quick enough so that they can pump your veins full of blood thinners to try and dislodge the clot. And they did that for me and it didn't work. But there's a time when I was, I was back in the ER and I had the worst headache I've ever had. It was like it was like my skull was in a vice and my um, heart rate dropped to about 23, 22. And Jacqueline said to the doctor, I don't think he's all right. And, she, and he checked me and he said, he's really not all right. I think you better go and sit outside. And so that was, that was, I remember this clearly. She remembers it really vividly because that was the point at which we won, we wondered whether, you know, my heart was going to stop and, you know, the trauma was going to continue. But when I got out of hospital the first time, I really couldn't speak. But typical Mark thought I should still do a narration for a Prince documentary that we had scheduled to get on the air somewhere. So I dragged myself into the studio and did it. And actually, I still got the, I still got that program. I just sound like a weedy, you know, old, I, I couldn't speak. Uh, and I did think that's really difficult because that's my job. And so I said to a, one of our musician friends in our music companies, I said, who's the best voice coach? And he gave me the name of this amazing lady who basically teaches opera singers and pop teaches opera singers how to be better and pop stars how not to ruin their voices and make their voices better 
everybody has been to her. And I, Jacqueline used to drop me down at her, because uh, I couldn't go anywhere myself. She used to drive me down to her house, sit in the car and wait for the hour while Mary was her name. And she uh, she basically taught me how to sing again. And because of the singing actually taught my left-hand side to do what the right-hand side of my vocal cords are doing, I eventually was able to to speak in a manner that was, you know, I had some power in my voice and sounded a bit like me. But actually, even now, on, as we're talking now, it is reedy compared to what it used to be. But and it and the the strength of voice doesn't last as long as it did. That's showbiz, isn't it? <laughs> but you clearly never thought in any of that. You always thought you were going to get back. I think I'm this sort of all or nothing thing. I don't. I I would probably not have ever thought I could be defeated by it. But it is it, the 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 second stroke was pretty dumb. I definitely not got myself into a place where I was. I mean, I could I I would have still had the businesses, but doing this job is sort it's very it's really odd you know there's the uh even though i have the other things that you might call a safety net i then st- and i ended up doing daily again before ken at uh, greatest hits for four years and you know i really wanted to do that because that's that was my first love i'm not unhappy to not be doing six shows a week now i'm quite happy to do two um and that's me maybe slightly starting to understand that doing a little less is not a bad thing but uh, you, there was no telling me in 2019 when they said, do you want to do this? I think Jacqueline was worried about it. Mm. Is there a fear there that there could be another stroke? No, I think that I'm quite well medicated now. So I do obviously feel much more tired than I did before I had strokes. But you kind of just have to understand where the limit is. You know, do lie on the sofa if you feel like you should lie on the sofa kind of thing. And uh, I'm not very good at days off. And Jacqueline, I said to Jacqueline yesterday, I'm tired. She said, that's just because you worked solid for three weeks. You haven't had a day off because I do weekend shows now. But I still not learned to take Monday and Tuesday off. Do you have to consider also, um, you know, your wife, your kids, you know, if, if for them to go through your two strokes must have been yeah. very traumatic. In the back of her head, she might be thinking, oh, please wind down. Or she might be saying, please, please. I'll be sure Who knows? No, please don't. No, I think uh, spoken and unspoken, I'm going to make, we do have a, we have a ton more time. I mean, you know that old thing when the bloke goes to work every day for 30 years and then stops and is around the house all the time. And that is my, just a little bit of an inconvenience for the person who's been at home for 30 years. Uh, it, it's, some, it's sometimes a bit like that, uh, which I actually do have quite a lot of sympathy for. But I'm here all the time. I mean, I, you know, you're talking to me. I'm at home. Basically, instead of being based in centre of London, which I was, I'm now here all the time and my trips in are infrequent. So uh, there's a walk with the dogs every morning, which is two or three miles. And there's a lot, a lot more time together. But I think the idea, the idea of um, making sure you use these next, you know, hopefully a couple of decades well, that is, a, that, I haven't got all the answers to that yet, but I'm certainly thinking about it a lot more than I was before. Right, shall we play some Big Six or Bingo? Yes, yes. So I want you uh, to come up with two numbers between 1 and 60. 25. 25, hold on, 25. And that is, how far ahead do you look? Um, I have plans uh, to achieve certain things. Uh, so I think I've got a three and a half year horizon. 
<laughs> on some on some some plans, but I am I'm pretty good with the diary. Actually, I I put stuff in the diary, and so I know I'm doing stuff. And in fact, one of my old colleagues from Radio One just messaged me just before we started, saying we we do a catch up. What about January or February? So I'm always I'm months ahead, but there are some things that I've decided I'm going to do by a certain time, and that's to do with actually planning life really. Mm-hmm. It's got oh, a forty-two month plan. I know, it's very specific. <laughs> no, but it's but it's not. That's not a, that's not a minute by minute plan. That's just some things no, that no, are going to no, get no. they're going to get done. Right, another number. Uh, thirty-one. Thirty-one. Do you have youth envy? Well, I, not no, not really. I, I um, until I had the strokes, I never really, I didn't really like birthdays. I wasn't ashamed of my age or anything like that. But I always felt. That and it, maybe this is a thing that mo- many people feel. I didn't feel like I was getting old, and I did. And I now, of course, I look in the mirror or I see myself on this screen here, and I realize I look like a sixty-two-year-old bloke. But in my head, I've never really felt uh, old, except now I do understand because I see, I see, um, you know, my kids are thirty-one and twenty-nine and twenty-five. Hence, two of those numbers you asked me to pick, and. Um, you know, I, I see what where they are in their life, and I see what their possibilities are, and I and I understand what the huge potential wins are, and I know where the, some of the tribulations are, and they come to me for advice, and I think that's a good thing. And I also work with quite a lot of young people, and in some of them, not all of them, I can see the ambition and the love of radio, and uh, in in some cases it's just radio like me, and some cases it's radio or TV or uh, wanting to be a YouTube star. And I can I can see that in other people, and I I I like to support that in them. So I I rather than youth envy, I actually think it's a really nice thing to to see what they're doing and be there for them. Not always like a parent parental relationship, though that's good. And I th- and I I look back and I think I've actually done this maybe all my life. You know, there are people now who run radio stations who wrote to me while I was at Radio One and said, "Can I come in and you know see the studios, or how do I get a job at Radio One?" And I, there are a lot of people, and I suppose if we've employed hundreds of people across the years in our companies, many of which have gone on to be fabulously successful. So, and I'm pleased with them. I'm not in any way envious of them. I'm just so pleased. And some of them are really way better at the thing that they do well than I ever would be, you know, but I'm very glad for them. Yeah. Mark, listen, thank you so much. It's been really lovely to speak to you. Thank you. Pleasure talking. Remember, our email address is podcast at htb60.com. We love to hear from you about your big 6.0 experience. Next week, a fascinating chat with the Observer's Agony Anne, psychotherapist and author, Philippa Perry.